Welcome to another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm David Lipton, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Louise Guillaume, a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford. Today, our guest is Tom Maniotis, professor of biochemistry and molecular physics at Columbia University. We'll be speaking with him about the diversity of protocoherence, the ethics of CRISPR-Cas9, and his many scientific friendships. All this and more, coming up. We're here with Tom Maniatis, professor of biochemistry and molecular physics at Columbia University. Thank you for speaking with us today. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure. So you grew up in Colorado and then went to Vanderbilt for graduate school. Can you share with us the context behind your decision to do science, but then also the environment in both locations? Yeah, so, you know, when I was an undergraduate at the University of Colorado, it was an interesting time of transition that uh, my major was originally in zoology because that's what was happening at the time. And there was this uh, transition into modern molecular and cell biology happening when I was there. Colorado had uh, recruited uh, an incredible cadre of uh, cell biologists, uh, among which was Keith Porter. And so I I graduated, and and honestly, I really, at that time, had no idea what I was going to do. I did a senior thesis in uh, in, uh, embryology, but hadn't really decided to go to graduate school or medical school or whatever. Uh, But I had a great undergraduate advisor who encouraged me to stay on. and uh, and so I, I stayed on for a master's degree, and I I benefited because I mean I did a thesis on using ultraviolet laser to selectively inactivate different parts of the chicken embryo. It was like one of the first lasers that was developed. But the important thing is that I had the opportunity to stay behind and take some really great courses. Uh, they weren't offered when I was an undergraduate because most of it was like, uh, you know, classical, descriptive, uh, zo- you know, zoology. And, uh, and at the same time, the, the Molecular Biology of the Gene book came out, uh, and I read that, and just it, it transformed me. I, I got so excited about doing molecular biology that I, I decided to go on and do that. And, and I did the master's degree, you know, as I say, because I hadn't really applied to graduate school. It was too late. But uh, my advisor introduced me to a man who became my Ph.D. advisor. His name is Leonard Lerman. And I mentioned this in the Nature Neuro, uh, Neuroscience and Nature Medicine article. Uh, it was an incredibly fortunate choice. Because uh, although it was at Vanderbilt, and at that time, I'm sure that not not too many people would be you know, dying to get into the into the biology program at Vanderbilt. He was extraordinary, uh, and I, I mentioned some of that in my uh, in my piece about him. He's just an incredibly creative and brilliant guy that really had a deep impact on how I think about science and what I did and. That, in turn, led to an introduction during a visit of Mark Potashny, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and that was quite a, uh, was a, a funny visit because he came and at that time was giving two talks 
One was on his experience of teaching uh, in Hanoi uh, at the height of the bombing. Wow. He, was, he taught uh, wow. molecular biology uh, in North Vietnam, and uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he was very much into the anti-war movement and so on. Yeah. But then uh, the second half of his talk was on the repressor. And so <laughs> I, uh, I went to dinner with him and uh, with a, a group of students and had an opportunity to speak with him, and that led to the postdoc at, you know, to Harvard. And that's when I got deeply interested in protein-DNA interactions, gene regulation, and so on. So, I, you know, I, I would say that in my senior year, I really had no idea what I was going to do. And it just sort of evolved during the next couple of years. Just followed your curiosity, I, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we should mention that the uh, Nature Medicine piece you referred to is the, your response to the Lasker Award. And this is a nice essay about, you know, the beginnings of your career. Um, which was uh, really helpful to uh, us and, you know, uh, getting a little bit of an intro into who you are as a person and, and scientist. So before we kind of get into some of the science, um, there was this period during your scientific career where there was, you know, after your uh, postdoc where there was this moratorium on recombinant DNA research. Can you just talk about the, the scientific climate back then and how you navigated that? Yeah, well, I, and I, I think what is not so obvious to people who weren't around then is that uh, this was a, not pure science. It was very much a, a sort of remnant of the anti-war movement in an interesting way. And actually, the, mm-hmm. this go, gets back to what I told you a few minutes ago between Mark being seen as a, as a lefty uh, mm-hmm. when he was... A, when he was uh, involved in the anti-war movement, and then the recombinant DNA thing started. And it just happened that the people who opposed recombinant DNA research were the anti-war people. And so suddenly, yeah. uh, Mark shifted <laughs> to the other side. He became the bad guy. But, uh, but what happened back then is that uh, there was an organization uh, led by Jonathan Beckwith uh, at Harvard, uh, called Science for the People, that emerged during the Vietnam War, and uh, they their agenda was really to make scientists more socially responsible, uh-huh. and uh, they targeted Agent Orange during the Vietnam War and and other you know the napalm and so on. Yeah. Uh, that were you know sort of came out of science and were used in a in a in a bad way. And so at the end of the war, they recombinant DNA uh, suddenly became a, a, a focus. And it was, it was very interesting because the opposition pretended to be science-based, but most of the arguments that were used were, were political, and they, they were delivered in a way that was very much like the messages delivered in their anti-war. Uh, it, they just sort of shifted their... Yeah. Their, their, their focus, but it was the same strategy. And so unfortunately, at least in Cambridge during that time, uh, there was a lot of uh, misinformation, uh, uh, I would say dishonesty in using, uh, pretending to use scientific arguments. Uh, and that was, you know, and that was a, a mix with genuinely valid scientific con- concerns. Mm-hmm. And so it was really crazy, frankly, at the time. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and so what happened then is that they did have this moratorium. And the, uh, the city council meetings they had were really insane. I mean, uh, 
the mayor, uh, who was a Harvard basher his whole career, was bashing on all the Harvard scientists, and it, was, it turned into a real circus. Yeah. And so, and so, you know, there's all this stuff in the background, but the the bottom line is that at that time uh, I was uh, deeply involved in developing the cDNA cloning methods, yeah. and couldn't do it there. And I was making a transition into a uh, a faculty position, assistant professor at Harvard. And so Jim Watson heard of what was happening. Uh, called me up and said, if you want to work, come to Cold Spring Harbor. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where we did the, the CDNA cloning. Mm-hmm. And I, I had a tiny little space in, uh, in an abandoned kitchen. <laughs> and it was, it was, it, my whole group was wow. in there. And, uh, and so we, you know, it was, at that time it was clear to me that uh, uh, it was going to be difficult. There's no space at Cold Spring Harbor. And I got a great offer from Caltech. And then, you know, I, I think there was like two months be, between getting the offer and being there. Wow. You know, and then I had a wonderful experience at Caltech. And uh, that's where we did the uh, development of the genomic DNA libraries. And, yeah. and for various reasons, I, you know, I, I later went back to Harvard, mainly because I, I really enjoyed living in Boston and, and uh, I didn't quite adapt to the Pasadena (laughs) lifestyle. Yeah. Or I guess given that context around recombinant DNA research, what perspectives and considerations do you have for the recent discovery and usage of CRISPR-Cas9 tools, which have also raised safety concerns, especially with their potential utility in germline cells? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that in my the span of my scientific career, there have been three major controversies, the first one being recombinant DNA, the second being stem cells. And the stem cells was really, you know, I'd say much more of a religious uh, issue than a, you know, than a safety uh, issue. And then now uh, the CRISPR-Cas9. And I think that what happened in the Asilomar conference is that it really... I think in a pretty dramatic way, changed the way scientists view their uh, role and obligation in society. And although, you know, there have been arguments that there was a overreaction to that and a lot of rules were made that in retrospect were were really unnecessary, I think the important thing is that it, it really forced the scientific community to think more deeply about that, uh, you know our obligation to to think things through with respect to the you know the the ha- not not just the hazards but the mm-hmm. societal implications and so on and so i I think we're now in that situation again and and I think everyone that I know you know would strongly argue against any germline intervention uh, at least uh, now uh, simply on the basis of the fact that we, we, it's so early in this technology that off-target effects are clearly a problem. But I think it certainly brings up, in the long run, a much deeper problem is, you know, uh, should society, should mankind evolve itself? Right. You know, should, yeah. we, should, yeah. we make, should we make a human race that, that is the best in everything, the smartest, the brightest, the most athletic, and so on? And I think those are profound questions that not just scientists, but society in general, mm-hmm. uh, ethicists, 
philosophers uh, really have to grapple with. And I think what the scientific community needs to do right now is just make sure that bad things are not done, right. that, we don't, that, that we don't actually create horrible outcomes uh, based on the technology. And I think that's where the focus has to be. And in the long run, the really serious issue of is how we, as a society, as a race, as a human race, use this technology. Do, you know, do we really want to change our genetic makeup? And I think it's a profoundly important and interesting question, mm-hmm. but is really premature right now because I don't think any reasonable person would think that germline alterations are appropriate at the present time. I, and I would say, especially considering there's so many options, the fact that uh, in vitro fertilization, mm-hmm. prenatal diagnosis, single-cell DNA and RNA sequencing are here. So there's so many steps you can take prior to conception that do not involve uh, that kind of intervention. It, it's, it's hard to argue that it should be done, at least for, you know, for, for the purposes that are being promoted, that is to prevent having children with terrible genetic defects. Yeah. So it sounds like out of the three big uh, debates, you know, the recombinant DNA, then the stem cells, you, you think this has the most scientific uh, weight to it. And, uh, oh, yes, uh, absolutely. Yeah. In both, uh, in ter- in both technologically and beyond. Ethically, yeah. I guess, mor- morally. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so I guess transitioning from molecular biology and your work in RNA biology, how did you decide to transition to neuroscience? What happened there is that I, I'd say one of the things looking back in my career that just as you mentioned earlier about following your lead, following the, your interest and your excitement, my whole career has been that way, that you know, we, we were the first to clone globin genes. Yep. And, and one of the earliest things we did was to compare the DNA sequences from the adult beta globin gene that we had cloned from a normal individual uh, with uh, DNA from individuals with beta thalassemia. And we initially focused on uh, mapping large deletions that affect the cluster. And then later, uh, we're looking at point mutations. And among the first point mutations that we discovered, and I think we are the first to do this, were mutations that affect splicing. Because at, at the time that this was happening, you know, the intervening sequence was discovered, the and so on. And, and so we, you know, we sequenced and we found uh, mutations in 5' prime and 3' prime splice sites in individuals with thalassemia. Uh, and we had at the same time worked out both in vitro and transfection methods for studying splicing. Uh-huh. And so we immediately took the mutant genes and determined the effect of these mutations on splicing and confirmed that they were in fact you know, affecting splicing. Yeah. So then that, that led to a whole era in my lab in which we focused on basic mechanisms splicing. We, mm-hmm. uh, we, yeah. we did the Lariat uh, mechanism work, uh, discovered uh, the uh, sort of interaction of SR proteins and splicing enhancers. So we, and much of that was done in Drosophila because we had the genetic background that uh, led us in a direction that uh, we could be sure involved splicing mechanisms. And so it was at sort of the end point of that uh, stage in my lab when 
we we are kind of winding down the the mechanistic splicing part in in flies, and uh, we're turning our interest towards uh, mammalian cells. And a paper appeared in, in Neuron from Yagi's lab that it's actually in retrospect quite funny because it was an isolation of a set of cDNA clones by a two-hybrid method in yeast. And it turns out that the two-hybrid probe that was used uh, was irrelevant, that the, the proteins don't actually interact with this. But and nevertheless, they, they published it. What, what drew our attention was that we saw that the whole series of cDNA clones they isolated had identical three prime ends, but had different five prime ends. And so, you know, we said, wow, that looks like that could be a really interesting problem for splicing. And so that was really our focus. So uh, Chang Wu, who actually came to my lab from Adrian Craner's lab at Cold Spring Harbor, who was one of the first people in my lab to work on splicing, and then he continued his career at Cold Spring Harbor. So Chang Wu came from Adrian's lab to my lab to work on splicing. Uh-huh. And I said, why don't, we, why don't we have a look at this? And then he did this incredible job of pulling this out. And what most people don't realize is that that was done prior to uh, the sequencing of the human genome. Right. And so uh, we had to piece it together by various bits and, and pieces that had been published, and we had to do a lot of sequencing ourselves. You know, this is before bioinformatics, before all the things we have today. Uh-huh. And so it was quite uh, an amazing accomplishment to piece this very complex genetic locus together. Yeah. And, you know, once we saw that, the whole world opened because I said, wow, this is really an interesting problem. And so that, that's how we got started. And, and so the initial work was really, as you could see from our papers, focused on trying to understand how these genes are transcribed and the RNAs are spliced. And so that was, that was entirely our focus. But yeah. as we read more and got more interested, and then uh, a really great postdoc came to my lab from a, a mouse genetics lab, Wei Sheng Shen, uh, we began to uh, work on trying to understand what these uh, what these genes do. And so it was really uh, this interest in uh, splicing and the um, basic regulation of how splicing works that that led you to search for this this group of proto-cadherin genes. Yes. And how? What was the the first clue that they were that there was this whole cluster on a chromosome that was organized like this? Yeah. Well, you know, it it, it pretty much fell out as we were uh, piecing it together. But uh, the striking thing, of course, is the fact that it looked just like the immunoglobulin gene locus. We said, "Wow! I mean, this yeah. uh, this is a." a, a a real possibility that these genes could be rearranging. And so we, we launched a, a collaborative effort with uh, Richard Axel uh-huh. lab. And uh, we've been friends for like 45 years, close friends. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we began to look at this to see whether there was DNA rearrangement and we quickly discovered there was none. Uh-huh. Uh, we had this incredible lead that there was transplicing, and uh, we did see transpliced RNAs, and ultimately, after an enormous amount of effort, concluded that it was sort of background uh, splicing. And so, you know, and that then led us to begin to examine very carefully the promoters, uh, the star points of transcription, splicing, and so on, which led to our current view of uh, what's going on there. 
And so just to uh, describe this for our listeners, if, you know, it's on, there, there's this large cluster of proto-cadherin genes that are on chromosome 5 that consist of these initial exons, one of which is alternatively included um, in the final transcript. And then there are these three constant exons. And then there right. are three separate clustered clusters of proto-cadherins. There's the alpha, beta, and gamma. And together, yeah. there's just this incredible diversity that uh, of trans transcripts, similar transcripts that can be can be formed. Yeah, and, and the key, you know, the key result there really, <clears throat> and, and this was uh, published in a beautiful paper by Yaga's lab yeah. uh, in 2006, was looking at the F1 progeny of two inbred mouse strains and doing qPCR, just yeah, qPCR on individual neurons, and uh, and actually the. The funny thing about that is we had been doing this on cortical neurons, and we simply couldn't get enough RNA out to get uh, statistically significant results. And they, they made the wise choice of using Purkinje cells where they could get enough RNA out yeah. and finding that each of the clusters and the two chromosomes randomly and stochastically make pro- promoter choices and that every... Yeah. Every single neuron has a different set of fifteen proto-coherents. Wow! And what were you thinking about what these molecules might do in the nervous system? I mean, and uh, DSCAM uh, around this time was discovered mm-hmm. in the fly, and so you had these two sets of very diverse cell adhesion molecules. Well, you know, was there a lot of excitement about their role in wiring? And you know, what were hypotheses? Oh yeah, I think in the very earliest paper papers that was uh, pointed out and as you said in your note to me it was really based more on the chemo affinity idea from Sperry yeah. which which in retrospect you know is, is not right because right. these these proteins are not like identity markers for synaptic interactions yeah they're, they're they're certainly expressed at the synapse but what they do there thus far is not clear and that the the DS cam really led the way, right? I mean, they were able to do genetics and Drosophila in a way that led to deep insights into what these proteins do with respect to self-avoidance uh, and tiling. Yeah. And so that it was, you know, and obviously uh, that was built upon. It was made clear by the, you know, the, the, the sort of classic uh, review that uh, Sabursky and Josh Sains wrote about uh, five years ago, I guess, right. in which they in which they brought these two systems together and compared them. Now, going back to a second to the uh, aspect of splicing in proto-cadherin genes, um, I noticed at the end of the paper in which you um, discover this whole large cluster of proto-cadherins, you sort of, um, in the discussion, immediately set up the next paper uh, where you describe how the genes are spliced to achieve such diversity. So... Can you reiterate what those three different possibilities were for how you have one alternative exon be connected to the three constant ones? Uh, yeah, you know, they, they, I hope I can remember this because it's been a while, but the, yeah. certainly one was a transplicing mechanism where you uh, where you generate short transcripts that are then uh, in fact we, we you know we spent uh, in the in the second paper a huge amount of effort uh, looking for a a transcript that initiated 
upstream from the constant region and, and never really found it. Yeah. DNA rearrangement and uh, I don't know yeah. what the third one. Was. Oh. Well, I I thought it was cool. It's been that. it's been a while. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I and you should obviously uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm you know talking to the author of the paper, but I uh, also remember like reading um, the two different possibilities for cyst splicing of just there being one promoter and then you kind of having to both cut out uh, the five prime end and the three prime end or just the different promoters. Right. No, that, yeah, that was, that was the most pertinent one that, and it was our discovery of this highly conserved uh, sequence upstream from the promoter yeah. that uh, led us to, you know, to the other, to the other model yeah. that there wasn't a single promoter that goes through and then, and then splicing occurs internally. Very cool. So in 2012, um, now this is jumping forward quite a bit, your lab published a paper um, getting in, uh, more at the mechanism of what these proto-coherent genes are doing um, in terms of uh, the functional significance for different aspects of brain development. And so you had these two different phenotypes of one which is interneuron loss, both in the spinal cord and the retina. And then there was this likely role in setting up neural circuitry that was also suggested by this one um, 2012 paper. Can you describe some of the experiments that were done? And there were a lot of really interesting mouse genetic reagents that were used. Right. So, you know, what, what, was, what was interesting when we first did the sequence was the discovery that there are two, two types of genes in each of the alpha and gamma clusters and that are those that were the what we call alternative isoforms which we now know are the ones that really provide the diversity mm-hmm. and uh, there uh, was a second set which called yeah. the C-type and there are two in the alpha, three in the gamma and they are more similar to each other than they are to the isoforms within the respective uh, clusters and so we were you know we've always been intrigued by what they do and uh what was important that that in the in the paper we talked about a few minutes ago the from the yagi lab is that the c types are expressed uh in every cell uh, constitutively and from both chromosomes so they're regulated different uh they look different and then uh, papers started popping up that uh, indicated that they may have uh, a special role. And uh, one of the uh, most interesting, which has not been followed up uh, at all, is the realization that in the gamma cluster, the C-type genes are shut off. I should say the alphas are only expressed in the, in the nervous system. Uh-huh. The gammas are expressed in many other places, yes. including the kidney. And so there was an interesting paper uh, showing that in Wilms' tumor, a kidney tumor, uh-huh. that the, uh, the, the C-type gammas are shut off. They're highly methylated. They're in heterochromatin. And that has emerged in three or four different papers uh, suggesting that uh, among these, and the, there, for various reasons, there's a, uh, a preference for C3, gamma C3, uh-huh. Uh, that they they function as tumor suppressors. I'm and just so, going to quickly, so uh, just uh, to mm-hmm. try to visually illustrate what this genomic locus looks like, um, if I remember correctly, um, so the protocoherent cluster genes consist of this alpha, beta, and gamma 
cluster. And then within the gamma cluster, there's uh, among those 15 to 20 genes, there's the A type, B type, and C type, but that are all part of the gamma. Right. Is that correct? That's right. And then the C type alternative exons are, are closest to the constant exons right. that are included in every transcript. Right. Okay. Right. Um, so they uh, they clearly had a had a special role, and so we decided to delete three of them. Yeah. The C three four five and study the consequences of that, and we're uh, amazed to discover that the cell death phenotype was due entirely to those genes. We don't know which one of the three. And, you know, now that we have CRISPRs working, we're going to quickly yeah. go back and ask what each of them does. Huh. But I, I think that that then enabled us to sort of functionally uh, uncouple the role of diversity from this fundamental function. And that really laid the groundwork for making doing the, uh, as I think I told you, enough for doing the, the gamma knockout in the uh, starburst amorphine cells in Josh Singh's lab. Yeah. And how did that collaboration uh, come about? I actually think it's a really uh, cool example of like scientific um, collaboration making better science. And that, you know. Yeah, well, you know, we, we overlap for, I don't know, five or six years with Josh because he came from uh, WashU yeah. to Harvard to head up the, the, the new neuroscience initiative. And and he he had been contacted by a person uh, in Alan Bradley's lab at Houston that got interested in this cluster for entirely different reasons, and and uh, had knocked out the gamma cluster and uh, was looking for someone to collaborate to determine the fun- functional consequences of that, uh-huh. uh, and uh, his his name is uh, Wong. He's now at Northwestern. And so they were working on that when, when they were at WashU. So when they came and, you know, we suddenly discovered we had similar interests and so on. Yeah. And so we had frequent joint group meetings. We exchanged ideas and so on. And it was, it was, a, it was a period in which, you know, uh, I think as I mentioned, uh, because of the cell death phenotype, it was really difficult to discern anything interesting about what these genes do. Yeah. Because it was always masked, and even though they crossed them into the Bax's uh, homozygous knockout and saw some sparing of inner neurons, it still didn't really reveal anything of fundamental importance. But, but I, as I, I think I mentioned to you in uh, in my note, yeah. is that Josh then used all of the tools that he developed and pioneered, and really uh, deeply interrogating uh, the retina. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and and discovered this thing, you know, that if you do a cell autonomous knockout of gamma in the starburst amorphine cells, you see this amazing phenotype. Now, what what's interesting? I'm going to talk about this uh, at Stanford. Is that that somehow gave rise to the view that it's a simple uh, it's a simple system. All all neurons uh, express the same sets of random protic adherence. Uh, they all have uh, phenotypes that could be the same. But the remarkable thing that people forget about when they read the Nature paper mm-hmm. is that when you do the full knockout, 
uh, you don't see much of an effect in the retina. So what's happening to all of the other cells, you know, right. in which the gamma is not present? Yeah. And we're beginning to understand that, and I'm going to talk about that at Stanford, and that it right. does appear that there, it's, it's much more complex and that they're likely to be, in fact, we now know, very uh, specific differences in the requirements of different protoadherents in different types of neurons. Okay. So, you re- so you're really forced then to begin to look at a single cell level. So, uh, so we're, you know, we're, we're collaborating with Leach and Lou's lab mm-hmm. on, uh, on applying MADAM to that. We've been involved in the collaboration for a couple of years. Okay. Uh, we're making chimeras. And the amazing thing, which I'll present, is that uh, we have a tri-cluster knockout now. That was enge- engineered wow. by Weishi, and and I can tell you, the so this we're is begin- knocking out the entire alpha, beta, and million base pair deletion. Yeah. Wow! Yeah. And and in order to in order to uh, of course that that turns out to be early embryonic lethal, and that's it's because there's a gene called TAF7 that's in the middle of the cluster. Oh. And so Weishing went as far as uh, making a uh, a back containing the critical put and made mice from that. And so we, we now have mice that, that complement that deficiency with the back and our tricluster knockouts. And uh, they make it to P0. And the reason why they make it to P0 is uh-huh. the same reason why the protocadherin gamma make it to P0. And so now we're able to begin to really discern interesting phenotypes and differences. And so, for example, uh, Unrelated to the tricluster knockout, as we've been doing work on uh, on the deletion of the alpha cluster, and they give an amazing uh, wiring defect in specifically in serotonergic neurons. Huh. And uh, and so it's you know it's uh, if you look at the um, the expression of protoadherins, it's almost uh, predominantly. Uh, alpha with little beta and gamma. In fact, we're doing single cell sequencing now to to determine whether just how what the level is. So what's emerging, I think, is that is that there uh, neuron specific differences in expression and function. Uh, that uh, there's redundancy in the system, and probably not only redundancy among the protoadherins, but redundancy between protoadherins and other proteins that we haven't identified. So it's, it's, it's turning out to be far more complex than we thought right. and, uh, and is reflected, I think, in, uh, you know, in, uh, in, in, the, in the Gamma paper where you know, it looked pretty simple. But I, I think that uh, yeah. and, we're, it's, and that's why we've been working on this for several years and it's been extremely frustrating because we couldn't find phenotypes right. uh, with individual cluster deletions and we now think we understand why. Well, with that sort of preview, I mean, we're all very excited to hear, <laughs> hear you present. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. We have some uh, rapid-fire questions for you, okay. which are just meant as... Um, oh, but actually, could I, could I oh, just yeah. add one thing? Yeah. yeah. That uh, the thing that, you know, all this, what, what's interesting, the protocode here, in, you know, it's now 15 years old, and the, f- the first 10 years was really slogging, difficult. Work both in terms of understanding the expression, the protein function, and the in vivo function, and all that's coming together now in an amazing way. And uh, and perhaps the most one of the most exciting uh, is the work that we published last year mm-hmm. 
showing that this uh, combinatorial assembly of proto-cadherins uh, uh, in, uh, enormously increases the functional diversity by forming these uh, higher-order uh, oligomers. And we've, we've just submitted a paper, which I'll talk about, uh, in which we've now uh, really understand what's going on there. We have the structure of the proto-cadherins, and wow. they interact with each other at the cell surface in a way that's completely unprecedented for any of the other cadherins. It's a completely different mechanism, which also plays and explains how the diversity is generated. And the key point is that uh, we've been addressing, and I think we've now answered, mm-hmm. is that in DSCAM, there are 19,000 isoforms, yeah. potential isoforms by mm-hmm. splicing. Uh, we have 58. So <laughs> how, how could you go... F- you know, have the functional homolog with that difference. Right. Right. And we now know that the combination of this combinatorial mechanism and the structure of these proteins provides the same level of diversity as the DSGAM, but in an entirely different way. And actually, now that you mentioned that, I uh, just want to highlight again the uh, excitement of that 2014 paper where uh, you show, like, remarkable specificity for different oligomers and trans. So these protocoherins can come together on the same cell very promiscuously, but then they can only bind to the exact same combination yeah, on the opposing exactly. cell. Were, were you yeah. expecting to see those two phenomena of the cis promiscuity and then the trans specificity? No, no, it was, it was a real surprise. And, and, and the, this, the structure that I'll show you uh, was completely unexpected and uh, and really uh, makes us think in a completely different way about how these cell surface proteins uh, establish and maintain specificity. Yeah. Hmm. And so um, now that you mentioned the comparison to the 19,000, I'm just thinking, you know, it, it's roughly like 58 to the fourth if there are you know, <laughs> four right. coming together or something. So that is a huge... Yeah. Huge diversity. Yeah, so we, we now know that the that these uh, molecules interact with each other as uh, cis dimers forming cis trans tetramers, mm-hmm. and uh, and the, the the key result which I'll focus on when I'm there was the yeah. surprising observation that A two in my lab uh, postdoc in my lab made that that if you look at different combination of isoforms, you know, one at a time, two at a time, all the way up to five, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, that a single mismatch completely prevents the okay. interaction. And that was really confusing. How could that possibly be the case? Yeah. And we think we now understand the reason for that. Well, I can't wait to see how yeah. the binding occurs to result in such specificity in the structure. That's really exciting. So with that, we have some <clears throat> rapid-fire questions not meant to require much elaboration, but just quick, brief answers are good. The first one is, since you've spent time in so many places in the U.S., uh, Colorado, Boston, Pasadena, or New York City? Which one do I prefer? Yeah. Uh, I certainly prefer New York (laughs) right now. you know, and it's, uh, I think I was altogether over 35 years at Harvard. Uh, I taught undergraduates. I taught the, the main uh, first-year course for graduate students for all that time. 
I had a wonderful time at Harvard. I love Boston. But, you know, uh, my move here sort of opened a whole new vista of things. And the most important is that I have lifelong friends and colleagues in neuroscience, especially Richard Axel, who really uh, brought me here. And uh, I've made a great new friend with uh, Charles Zucker, who we I share uh, a lab with, uh, part of our lab. And it's just been wonderful, you know. And I, I think that's, you know, I spent a long time at Harvard. It was great. But I think the, I was getting a little, uh, it, was, it was getting, you know, I was there too long. Yeah. And it was great to go into a completely new intellectual environment. And the, the, and I love New York. I mean, I, I didn't realize that I would, but I, uh, yeah. I really liked it here. So related to that, you mentioned in your Nature Medicine piece after receiving the Lasker that you used to speak every week with Richard Axel and Hal Weintraub about the mm-hmm. latest papers and ideas. Mm-hmm. So do you still hold similar phone calls? And with whom do you discuss well, now it's now the triad is Zucker, Axel, and Manny Otis, and we literally, we literally talk every day. Oh. Uh, and uh, you know, we have lunch together at least once or twice a week, and we're constantly interacting. We share postdocs, graduate students, and so it, it's actually a much more direct interaction that we have because Hal, at the time, was at the Hutch. Right. Uh, uh, Richard was at, uh, at Columbia and I was at Harvard. But we have, we have a similar uh, scientific and personal relationship. And the last question is, in a 2003 Cold Spring Harbor interview, you mentioned your love of architecture. So any particular architect you find most inspiring or important? Well, you know, I, uh, I certainly got interested initially in Frank... Lloyd Wright's uh, architecture. I, I, I love the simplicity and the, uh, you know, and the, the sharp lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've become uh, interested in Renzo Piano's uh, architecture. He had a, a meeting in New York two years ago in which his entire body of work was presented in a large uh, room, and it was you know, incredible. And I, I built a house in Maine uh, about 15 years ago that is uh, architecturally very interesting and unique and, uh, and, and put a lot of effort into thinking about how that should be designed. So I, I would say that if I, if I weren't doing science, I would, be, uh, I would want to be an architect. And, my, and actually my uh, uh, daughter-in-law uh-huh. uh, is an architect in New York, and so I enjoy uh, you know, hearing about her work. Very cool. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Well, yeah. thank you. That's all we have. Thank you so much. It's really great. And we yeah. both uh, very much look forward to the seminar. Well, I look forward to seeing you in person. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you again. Okay. Have a great yeah, day. And thank you all for listening. This episode marks the end of the NeuroTalk podcast series for this year. Please tune in next year for another outstanding season of Stanford Neuroscience Seminars and NeuroTalk interviews. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Ada Yi, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Eddie Alberin, and myself, Ruth Gian. Adam Puchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our music. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Broken, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience visiting our website at www.neuroscience.org. That's spelled N-E-U.